0: This is the conundrum. As a property investor, we actually need to keep up with what home buyers can afford to buy and the suburbs and localities they wanna live in. Welcome to the Urban Property Investor. I'm your host, Sam Saggers, here to help you crack the code of real estate wealth. Today's show, a code cracker, we're going to dig into is cheaper, better in real estate. We're going to have the conversation around low-cost investments. Hey, if it's your first time tuning into the program, welcome aboard. Play the show in double speed. And of course, all the episodes I've done... On the podcast are lessons on real estate, so go back, feel free to go back in time. And of course, welcome back you regulars, thank you for tuning in, thank you for choosing me to be part of your real estate journey. I am honoured to be here, but I tell you what, I am cranky, I just had a fight with a robot on a telephone. I didn't know that robots could fight you, and they can. So be wary. If you've been telemarketed by a robot and you tell that robot to rack off, it's going to have a conversation with you. I literally just had a fight, a yelling match with a robot on a telephone. The world is changing so quickly. It is blowing my mind. And I tell you what, we are living through the start of an economic revolution with things like AI, robotics, blockchain tech, energy storage. It is all... Happening, and I think the next phase of economics with real estate will be an awesome one. But right now, we're here to talk about the idea that cheaper real estate is quite volatile. And really, when we think about real estate, there's a spectrum, if you like, a bit of a bell curve as to where the mass of population shops. It's not necessarily the expensive end of town, nor is it the least expensive end of town. Really, most of society tries to keep up with the middle section of the market, the middle class marketplace in Australia. Really, if you were to say where is the bulk of transactions occurring, it really is around the average price of our cities when it comes to the housing and apartment marketplace. If we drop below that, we tend to enter volatility. And really today, there are a lot of people who put out reports on you know, the cheapest real estate hotspots under $500,000. And there's certainly a lot of people that advocate the idea that you should buy really inexpensive property because the fact that it has never grown means the future is all Growth. And I will say, I think the idea of just speculating on capital growth is a silly economic principle. Capital growth may or may not come to any real estate marketplace. And of course, a lack of capital growth for an area, a place over the last 20, 30 years, and the reference that it's going to then get capital growth is a bit of a concern to me because I need to flag, well, why has it not grown in the past? And is that because of a lack of value? Is that because it is a diamond in the rough? Or is that simply because no one actually wants to live there? Is it because that particular suburb or location or township is disinvested? Is it because families, emotional families, do not want to move there? And if if it is the case that really it is not an attraction magnet, then of course the consensus is going to be built into the price. The consensus is going to say this is a cheap place because no one wants to live there and thus the price is inexpensive. And of course, for many, many people, the idea of buying real estate is kind of simple. The problem part is the hold period. So if you buy a very inexpensive property, the odds are it may not be in the best part of town, but even further than that, probably the age and condition of the property is not going to mirror what you're actually trying to do. For most people, the buy and hold concept is a little bit misunderstood. The buying part, most people get, you can borrow so much money, so you go looking for an asset. The holding part is where I think it breaks down for too many people. The holding part is a long journey. In fact, when you buy a property, you should actually have in the mindset that you buy so well that you never sell. And really, you need to then link also that you're going to take this property on your journey of life. And if we think about life expectancy, I think we would all hope to live to the ripe old age of 100 or 90 years of age. If we're 30, we've got to choose a property that's going to help us for another 60 or 70 years. If we're 40, a property which is going to last for another 50 years after all the asset we choose today is interlinked with the person we are tomorrow the asset we choose today is actually something we're going to carry into retirement now if you're a trader obviously a different conversation if you're buying developing flipping renovating for profit and flipping properties in a couple of years completely different conversation to long term investment. And as I often tell people, long term investment is 21 plus years. And really, lifetime investment is exactly what I'm referring to investments that travel through your life expectancy. And I buy real estate personally that is going to make my life journey simpler. It's not going to complicate it further. Today, uh, after this podcast, I'm literally going down to a property I own. It's actually nearby. I'm one of the only properties I own that's um, very close to where I live. And the property is 15 years old. I actually bought it. Um, and when I bought it, it had never been lived in. But it was mortgaging in possession, and it was basically two years old. Uh, I've owned the asset for 13 years, which is considered in investment medium term, but the asset itself is actually 15 years old. It's been a great performing asset. It's gone up a lot of money, um, but the beautiful part about this asset is I'm actually just changing tenants at the moment. I put the rent up um, quite handsomely on the tenant who lived there they couldn't afford it they've moved out it's a real good opportunity for me to jump into that property and make sure it's traveling on the same journey as me through my life and of course uh, the best thing about actually going to see this property is I don't have to do very much whatsoever to maximize the rent potential of the asset. New car, new carpet, new paint. I'm changing the op- uh, using the opportunity to change the lighting um, to more energy efficient uh, light bulbs. So a very, very good piece of real estate because I'm not spending $200,000 having to renovate this property to keep up with the Joneses. It already is keeping up with the Joneses because when I bought it, it was already modern and in a good location. Now, the reason I tell you that story is that, again, if we're going to choose an asset, we don't want to be coming back every 15 years, dropping hundreds of thousands of dollars to make sure the asset performs. We want to choose a property which is going to mirror our life and our journey through the concept of our time horizon. And so my time horizon when I invest is lifetime. For other people, their time horizon is completely different. And again, this is the strange part about property investment. We often compare what we do to others, but the reality is we all start property investing with different amounts of money different jobs, different servicing, different buying power, different deposit power. And so we all end up going on different journeys through property investment. And we all have different results. And so not one strategy will fit all people. It just doesn't work like that. But I think one of the challenges inside of an ever-changing economy is making sure that you invest and try and keep up with the middle section of the marketplace. That investment I was just referring to, classic middle-class piece of real estate, been performing really well over the period of time. It's gone up handsomely and the rents have gone up handsomely. Connected to a huge, huge amount of people in the bell curve or the spectrum of populace inside of society. So if you want to tackle risk, one of the riskiest sections of the spectrum is both the high end, end of the market and the lowest end of the market. And for, again, a lot of property investors, they see that cheap is better because when they look at the asset, they might see a price tag of $400,000 and go, wow, that's, that's not going to uh, upset my life. That's not going to disrupt what I do. I'm not going to have to do a hell of a lot. To partake in that investment, I'll just speculate that there is capital growth, and lo and behold, the rental return looks pretty good at five or six or six and a half percent. What they may not appreciate is that that particular place is a tenant town, a tenant suburb. The profile of the suburb may be completely tenant-orientated. It may be a suburb which really lacks as an attraction magnet to young families, to middle-aged couples. The diversity of the suburb as a profile may just completely lack true fundamentals. And then as we analyze why it's cheap, it becomes evident that it is just not a popular place. The consensus is built into the price. And of course, a lot of advocates will advocate to buy in those areas. Even buyers agents sometimes work those areas because you're really uh, working a territory where one investor disgruntled sells to another investor who is almost a greater fool buying into that marketplace, sometimes getting a good cheap deal because the first investor is so sick of the investment, they sell to the second investor. And uh, the counter argument is equitable markets. Now markets with equity within them are actually marketplaces where we quite often see a more consistent level of capital growth over time and the best way to understand it is when a suburb has performed the people inside that suburb which quite often is a mixture of people who are debt-free who have paid down debt and of course buying into the suburb or living there as tenants are a very diverse suburb however what we often find is one in five one in seven houses has a lot of equity in it and the demographic profile of people who want to live in better housing and so we will see them use the equity in their housing to upgrade their house And as such, you get this neighbourhood effect of just a better look and feel to the suburb and therefore a better look and feel to the community. And of course, it's a bit of a merry-go-round because the fact that locals start to upgrade their properties, their apartments, their houses, their townhomes with extra, uh, paint, you know, extra... Renovation, then the suburb itself becomes even more attractive. And this again um, attracts people to pay more for properties in this neighborhood. And so the opposite can happen at the uh, disinvested section of the marketplace. Basically, because there is no equity in the properties the locals that live there really have no extra wealth to upgrade the look and feel of their properties, to upgrade the look and feel of the community, the neighbourhood. And so you get this rundown effect and because properties depreciate, what happens is the next person in sees an older asset and wants to pay less for the real estate. And of course we get the opposite neighborhood effect where you get the run-down concept of a neighborhood. It's ugly, uh, it's not an attraction magnet to new people, they do not want to actually necessarily live there. You get the crime effect. When things are run-down, it attracts a uh, more sort of rat-bag class of person, if you like, And that creates again more localized crime, more graffiti, more uh, robberies, more car break ins. And this vicious circle just flows. And so then you get the house prices or property values dropping. And on paper, it can look very good because the rents can be five, six, six and a half percent. But the reason they're six, six and a half percent is not because necessarily of a rental surge. It's the polar opposite. It's disinvestment at work. It's property values, which continue to decline and look and feel of assets in decline. And obviously uh, the remedy to, to, uh, to not doing that is looking at equitable markets. Markets which have done very well in the past but are still good value today and buying into those markets knowing that people have paid down debt in those suburbs so they've got full of equity or that the suburbs have grown and people can reach out and renovate and improve the neighbourhood. The neighbourhood effect is an important principle of real estate investment that's where we can create growth in our properties even though the market may be slower it may not be a higher level of growth rate but we are still able to get an uplift because our neighbors are helping us do the work we get this kind of neighborhood effect so downside risk and cheaper real estate are. They really go hand in hand. And we need to understand that perhaps the last 20 years of real estate is going to be very different to the next 10 years because over the last 20 years, we really haven't seen the mega trend of inequality unfold inside of Australia. Everything's been pretty fair and reasonable for a large amount of the last 20 years. However, we are right now, seeing inequality at work. You know, the broke end of town, tenants struggling to meet their obligations. Um, people are struggling to keep up with the cost of living. And this is where we need to understand, for example, the idea that Australia is a wealthy country, but a lot of the wealth is trapped in a certain proportion of society. Um, really, the top tier of society controls up to 63 percent of overall capital and wealth and so we are seeing really the split of society the have and have not world and quite often when we study incomes you know it is a little bit disproportionate even the reporting this is where we need to go back to some rudimentary mathematics like mean median mode the mean or the average is a number which is often flouted when it comes to incomes inside society the average wage if you like is ninety thousand dollars which seems like a good amount um put two uh income earners together you're at one hundred eighty thousand dollars household income however uh the average is distorted because the average takes in the higher percentile of earners who control most of the wealth and then redistributes that average across everyone. So to formulate the average, you're taking everyone, uh, the disproportionate amount of people who control the wealth, and you're saying that that is uh, a blend of across all of society. But it's not necessarily how it works and there isn't a lot of $180,000 double income households in society. Uh, in fact, probably the better and more accurate is median where you go, well, there's uh, a certain amount of people making $50,000, 60000 70000 80000 90000 100000 You try and find the middle point as to what that data set reveals and really the median income in Australia is around $65,000. And, of course, uh, then if we go to some demographics around how many families are divorced, how many single parents there are, obviously – uh, we can find further metrics on that, and again, like a a suburb which demographically speaking is a bit of a broken window neighborhood, a broken home neighborhood. It may be cheap on paper. It may even have a good yield on paper, but the true story, the human story, is low wages, and uh, usually a dependence upon one person to to run those homes, which, again, if you think about how inequality is growing inside of society, it's a real challenge. Now, again, for the last 20 years, a lot of people have never seen this. They've never seen the productivity issues of, for example, higher unemployment. I left school in basically 1993. The The unemployment rate was 10.6%. Uh, the productivity problem that that was creating in Australia was a real issue, a real issue. People left uh, a lot of their ability to earn on the table because they just couldn't earn. There was no productivity for many people pockets in society during that period. Uh, it wasn't until really, you know, um, some years later that recovery occurred. And, and again, years and years and years of people's economics, economic well-being can be sidetracked if uh, inequality becomes a thing. And I want to explain it to you. So you you don't say, Sam, you never told me. How does the mathematics work? How does growth work linked to the idea of of inequality? So let me explain it to you, right? Because it's an important thing to comprehend. Economic growth is fueled by total uh, capital, right? So that's wages, that's asset values and Obviously, the more that people can can produce and the more assets created, it creates a total level of output of growth. Government is funded and tax is paid on total uh, the total growth of capital. And that's wages, that's, that's asset prices. That's how government is paid. They tax basically on the total capital created in society. This means uh, that if tax is connected to the accumulated amount of wealth and also all of a sudden people are feeling a level of inequity, then what happens is more people start to cry poor and want a redistribution of how tax works in society. So all of a sudden, what happens is government start to do this, let's pick on the perceived rich to redistribute to the poorer section of the market. We've already started to see this unfold. Superannuation, rules of change, you can only earn a certain amount, if you're too rich, you're not gonna you're not gonna get that. This is the concept that wealth is trying to actually be redistributed because most or a lot of people can't keep up with the rat race. And again, like this redistribution of tax from capital is is gonna be a big conversation over the next decade. And what ultimately ends up happening is if you tax capital and growth too much, then all of a sudden the incentive to acquire capital and grow becomes uh, a, a less desirable thing. And we're already seeing this unfold. I was speaking to a uber driver down in melbourne very talented man um drives uber now um used to own a whole bunch of investment properties started to go well the bureaucracy of owning investment properties was doing his head in and the fact that he had to be compliant every year with fire inspections and things like that got out of the market one less landlord in the market someone who couldn't tolerate the idea that government is playing too much of a bigger role inside of real estate. Of course, that person leaving uh, the stewardship of being a landlord has pushed rents up on the people who can least afford it because now there's just simply less landlords out there. But here is how it works. If you create more bureaucracy and higher taxes, you actually burden the economy and you slow the economy. A slower economy will have less jobs. Now, we're not seeing this right now because right now we are understaffed across the country as we have been going through a very accelerated period of economics inside of uh, inside of Australia, however, the current set of situation doesn't necessarily lend itself to the years ahead. If we slow down economics, we will slow down job creation, and again. Uh, if we look at, for example, the IMF, International Monetary Fund, which basically is the bank above central banks across the world, uh, the forecasts over the next decade for growth is very, very low. And again, if growth is low, job creation is low, so the person at the bottom end of the spectrum, if they do not have high skill will be s- sidelined from their role in productivity. So the idea of uh, a slower economic base is that quite often people cannot grow their wages. They even work then for less than what they're worth. Or the worst case is if there is a level of recessiveness and unemployment, and it reaches double digits, you get this human being productivity loss. And again, what that looks like is people are economically sidelined and it takes them decades to recover to again create economic growth, which fuels government taxes. And so we get this kind of, uh, Interesting challenge when it comes to how inequality actually works. See, lower tax societies actually grow faster and create more prosperity for the people that live in those societies. Here in Australia, we've had 20 years of this, it's been wonderful. In fact, Australia's in the top five wealthiest people in the world. Our net wealth is is huge compared to other p- countries that have been through this problem and uh, are further down the track than we are at the moment when it comes to what this looks like we've been blessed here so uh we know that economic growth pays for taxes without economic growth taxes are uh, uh, obviously need uh, need to be created and really if we overtax to redistribute that money to the less well-off then all of a sudden uh, the economy actually goes into a bit of a grind mode. Now the reason I'm telling you this economics is that it is very very probable, that we live through a low-growing economy for the next decade. It's not going to be high-growing, it's going to be low-growing. So what does this actually mean for suburbs which are cheap? Does it mean that those people will uh, who own real estate there see that real estate double? Well, we need to be very vigilant about this because it is very, very probable that those areas will continue to stagnate, that they won't be attraction magnets for people because, again, we are seeing a further rise in inequality. We're going to not necessarily see a middle class inside of Australia. We don't necessarily see that right now. If you look at how wealth works in Australia, we don't have a middle class. It kind of looks like a horseshoe, if you like. The thing that is unfolding is actually the rich are getting richer, the poor are getting poorer. So if your real estate is linked economically to a neighbourhood that can't improve its look and feel because it's not a popular place, then you're really speculating on capital growth based on logic that never existed over the last two decades. Inequality did not necessarily exist for the last two decades. In fact, prosperity existed. Now, again, there's going to be obviously a lower growth in economics, but For the better end of town, the more prosperous end of town, the more skilled end of town, the suburbs where people desire to live in, they will continue to do well. Because again, if you look at how economics will continue to unfold – if by way of example, you can improve your productivity because you're a skilled person in economics and you can use things like robots to ring people and annoy them, then you're probably going to make even more money. And this is, again, the dichotomy of real estate at the moment. We as property investors probably cannot afford the top end of town. Which is the other spectrum of this bell curve? We can't, we don't want to invest in the bottom and the best real estate assets $2 million in Sydney, $1.5 in Melbourne, $1.5 in Brisbane. For a lot of people, the challenge to buy those pieces of real estate is the burn rate, like, and also qualifying for the loan. Uh, for a lot of people in society, their home is worth one, $1 million. The idea of buying a $1.5 million investment property doesn't make sense. And so the interesting part for us is we, as property investors, actually uh, can do really, really well finding something that is perceived as affordable, but the perception of affordability needs to be at a localised level, not at a spreadsheet level from a property investor. In other words, what is an affordable suburb? Well, an affordable suburb is a suburb whereby the largest amount of populace, the population, is actually interested in living in that suburb. It's a highly livable suburb. And usually what makes a highly livable suburb is its proximity, its location, movement, its walkability, its desirability, its amenities, uh, its infrastructure. The bell curve of the society says that is very good value. So it's the difference between what is cheap to an investor and what is considered affordable to the uh, home buyer marketplace. And this is the conundrum. As a property investor, we actually need to keep up with what home buyers can afford to buy and the suburbs and localities they want to live in. That is what I refer to as Buying investments in what are known as affordable suburbs, but highly livable. Big difference from affordable, highly livable suburbs, which the affordability metric is a metric driven by home buyers, to affordable, high yielding suburbs, where the metric of affordability is driven by spread- spreadsheet property investors. Big difference. So as a property investor, buying cheap is not necessarily all it's cracked up to be. Sure, there are some, some opportunities which uh, when you discover them, you can go, wow, this this is really affordable real estate. But there are some metrics here which locals want to participate in this affordability. Home buyers want to participate in this affordability. People want to live in this suburb. It is not a concentrated tenant suburb. It is a suburb driven by home ownership, house-proud people, people who want to build the community. This is an important, important principle of property investment. So for property investors, and again, like when you explore property investment, quite often the challenge is you'll be looking at models of property investment and there are certainly people who advocate that you look at a market the market has never grown uh, and that really the only uh, thing the market can do next is grow and again for a lot of suburbs if they don't have equity in them the idea of those suburbs improving themselves needs to come from cash. And uh, the process of that means that people would need to pay cash to renovate, which most people don't have. So uh, the upgrading nature of capital growth goes hand in hand. And this is where quite often even capital growth is a little bit just. Dis- Distorted by virtue of how it's reported. You know, you could have a million dollar property that resells for 1.2 million, 20% gain, but is it reported that it was a $150,000 renovation to make that $200,000 gain? Is that actually a 20% return? This is why I think property investment needs to be measured really over a, a longer term horizon. Going back to the journey you're on, if you are a buy and hold investor, then you've got to go and say, well, I'm buying this real estate. I'm going to track it year on year. I'm 35 years of age. I'm My time horizon is 90 uh, till I'm 90. For 55 years of holding, I need this real estate to attract people that constantly want to improve the look and feel of the neighborhood it's a big metric so real estate carries volatility and it carries risk and so i'm a big advocate of explaining a little bit about what that looks like and really the bell curve of risk is that you go to the cheapest section of town and of course the the flip side of the bell curve is the prestige end of the market. It's very volatile. It can change by a million dollars in one weekend. For most people, the spectrum of investing in the uh, luxury prestige end of town is is really not an option. Uh, and again, the best real estate out there, you know, is two two million dollars. The consensus is built into the price. So, as a property investor, really, what we need to do. Is go well. Uh, what is the spectrum bell curve for your budget? And if you're more a $600,000 investor or a $700,000 investor or a $550 investor or an $850 investor, what is the best and most affordable market for your buying power? And where do we find the best diversity? and assets for that budget. And of course, uh, what that allows you to do though, if you can shop at that price, is kind of avoid the very volatile tenant suburbs which you know are uh, abundant in Australian real estate. The 10 hotspots under $500,000, that kind of vibe. So how do we protect ourselves? Well, I think we need to have this conversation because it's a it's a big conversation in real estate. Like not everything may be as rosy as we think when we become an investor. We can't control the economy. We can't control global economic output. You can't control trading partner output that link to Australia. You can't. You never will. I can't. You can't. What we can do is make decisions on where the major centers of population density are and what those people can afford to buy. And of course, mirror what that looks like with our investments. What's affordable to a home buyer? completely different to that of an investor our job as an investor is to try and find a good uh, mirror point of where we can keep up with what home buyers and and um, and owner occupiers actually want so i think to make sure we manage our risk we need to consider always diversity diversity in a suburb what does diversity in a suburb even look like well it can be diversity in look and feel of the neighborhood it can be diversity in people in the neighborhood the types of jobs they do it's diversity in product types you know houses apartments townhouses it's diversity in tree count it's diversity in green space it's diversity in uh, the tenant versus owner-occupier mix, its diversity in debt levels in the suburb, all very important. And again, this links back to can that suburb, which is just a micro-economy, actually upgrade itself? And it's a very important principle in real estate because the ability for that suburb to improve its look and feel it's going to bring more capital growth to that neighbourhood. Now, again, uh, it, again, that diversity is the suburb turning into a more professional suburb. Are more job people working in a higher professional uh, standing being attracted to that neighbourhood. This is, again, it's all going to come through equity. And this is important. There are suburbs which are inequitable. They have no equity in the housing. In fact, they are negative equity. The people who bought there have lost, and so they don't. They even if there was uh, capital growth, it may only get them back to a position where they break even, and then even beyond that, it has to grow so much further for someone to be able to borrow equity and renovate it in their own home. So diversity is key. I think how we've got to manage downside risk is not be speculators. Now, if you Googled what a speculator is, I'm sure it would come up with some sort of gambler's theory. Speculators in real estate really are people who solely rely on capital growth but actually do not exam, examine fundamentals of real estate. So they go into these hotspots or these uh, places based on one thing alone. They want to buy a cheap property because they feel like they shouldn't or don't deserve uh, to buy in an area where there are cracking fundamentals. And so they speculate, and really the only thing they're speculating is on capital growth. But when they look deeper down, has there ever been capital growth? Uh, What type of diversity is there in the neighbourhood? Is there equity in the neighbourhood? These are really, really important questions. If there's equity in a neighbourhood, you're not speculating on capital growth because you know prices will improve because people have equity or less debt in those neighbourhoods, which build in community growth. Obviously, I think risk matrix are important to real estate, and I often find that people buying at the cheap end of town will even choose quite remote places where really the investment is dependent upon really them being involved. And again, like, think about your journey as a buy and hold investor. You're 40 years of age, you want to get to 80. For 40 years, do you really want to be emotionally involved in the asset? And again, like, I think markets which carry a lot of downside, uh, cheaper markets, which are quite volatile, whereby the emotional input from the investor keeps people up at night. They are emotionally invested just too deeply in something which concerns them constantly. And of course, I think that uh, actual input can also be seen in just some of the properties at the bottom end of the market are so almost old and run down that you're sending the electrician there three times a year. The plumber's going twice because of a washer and a block drain. Um, really, a lot of the real estate needs to be fundamentally knocked down, but it can't be rebuilt because no one would possibly want to pay to live in those areas in a new property, which. obviously going to cost more because the area just is considered uh, a not desirable place and of course uh, if you have to invest your time energy and emotions into an asset it's probably not going to be the right asset for you to hold and therefore it is without question the wrong asset if your time Money and emotion is being uh, sucked into the property. I can tell you, it's not a buy, hold, and buy well, never sell piece of real estate. Now, the property I'm going to see after this to just sort of check on the painting and the carpet. Like I could quite easily not be there. I'm just doing it for a for a bit of a bit of something to do. But for 15 years, I've been not emotionally invested in the property at all. It's like I don't even own it. That is a true property investment. I do not need to worry about it whatsoever. Uh, I've never worried about it. I never will worry about it. It ticks all the boxes from a location point of view. It's very connected to a suburb which is constantly trying to improve The type of people that it attracts are very good tenant profile people. So there is no issue. And again, with less expensive areas, you just need to be very mindful that they are unstable. And what I mean by that is they can be very, very uh, connected to, to liquidation sales. They can be connected to... Um, foreclosures and again like even though that sounds sexy the fact that your neighbor's foreclosing on debt um, and the bank's moving in to seize an asset and is going to auction it and it's probably going to be auctioned for a cheaper price is not a good situation and we see that in many places you know uh, one suburb up in Brisbane very common for you know, low-cost investors looking for a good rental return to buy in Woodridge in, in, in Brisbane. I mean, this place is just constantly turned over from one investor to the next. And it really is an unstable marketplace. And, and in some respects you go, well, you know, banks must just see constantly, you know, defaults um, in this suburb and similar suburbs like it, like at some point they probably go, the risk is not worth it, and withdraw really the ability to lend in in certain areas like that. Now I've certainly seen this in sort of satellite regional areas. And I think sometimes regional is a little bit misunderstood in Australia. I like regional investments. I like places like Newcastle, Gold Coast, Geelong, uh, Ballarat, Bendigo. I mean, these are... These are big regional places. In some respects, I don't even think we should call them regional. I think it's a little bit of a a a, a misunder, uh, misuse of the word regional. Um, how I, I still can't understand how the Gold Coast is is classified regional. Like it's it's huge. It's basically between Brisbane and the Gold Coast, one giant city now, right? Um, so. But again, like if we're going to buy cheap real estate, we need to understand the credit market may actually not even not even support those areas moving ahead. I know it's cheap to get a loan today, and it's um, you know seems like a a nice simple investment to 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 own. May even have a really nice land size or something like that. Uh, but what lies ahead? may be a little bit alarming to an investment like that. And again, I always find those areas, there is really no resale. Uh, and you see that, like why does an investor have to sell to another investor? The simple reason is no one at an owner-occupier level, whether they're a single, a young couple living to live in an apartment, uh, a family-friendly couple looking for an apartment or a townhouse, or a young, larger family, like they don't want it. Otherwise, why wouldn't they buy it? Why does a property investor have to buy the asset? Why can't it be auctioned on the weekend to 22 people all looking for that property? Why is it not someone's dream home? These are the questions we need to ask ourselves. Why is it not actually sellable to a... A a owner occupier. Um, And again, like if you examine um, the sales system, the sales rate, a lot of these communities, it is a real estate agent who owns a rent roll, who's got an investor who hates their investment. They probably bought it off that same real estate agent. They ring the real estate agent, they say, I hate the investment. Can you put it on the market for me? Real estate agent goes, Great, there's a commission. Buyer's agent comes in getting paid 20 grand to find someone a deal, finds them a deal with a great rental return, seemingly cheap asset, Rings the real estate agent who they, you know, have done this many, many times with. Uh, I've got an investor looking to spend, you know, $480,000. What do you got for me? Yeah, I got another investor selling. Great. Uh, yep. I'll make the offer. Offer made, deal done new property investor comes in uh, who's obviously turning into a landlord signs up with the property management team via the uh via the 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 purchase they just made and uh, the real estate agent obviously gets back their property management and guess what five years later they do exactly the same thing over and over and over it's like self-liquidating business in a way You're basically swapping one property investor out with another property investor, retaining the property management and getting two commissions. Of course, the buyer's agent kind of wins along this journey as well. So, um, you know, be very, very mindful of this stuff because, uh, you know, you want to avoid really marketplaces which are dependent upon basically demographics of broke people or just aging you know, communities where really there is no one underneath them coming through the system. And this is quite often where we see these sort of broken suburbs, if you like, and there's plenty of broken suburbs where really the proxy of those suburbs is that no one wants to live there. Um, And uh, they are undesirable. They're full of crime. They're, They're suburbs which make people anxious And in some respects, they get leapfrogged by the new construction market. And I've seen this firsthand in many, many places. And quite often, you know, some commentators will kind of pick on new housing corridors where, you know, beautiful young families want to go and and build a community. The reason sometimes those communities form and are actually really good places for property investment is people are leapfrogging these really downtrodden, broken suburbs and going, you know what? I'd prefer to go 10 kilometers further and buy a nice family home, be amongst other house proud people trying to get ahead. Um, and I think we need to recognize that because there are some awesome, awesome communities being created um, which are, not close to the city, Um, they're probably a similar distance to these broken suburbs, but completely different really sense of pride unfolding. And, uh, you know, again, it's, it's, it's an interesting dynamic where you go, well, of course areas further afield, further from the city, the uh, price per square meter for land, you're gonna, it's going to be less. It's just the way it's always worked. It's the way it always will work. Is it ultimately, um, you know, a, a, a better to be in a better location? Of course, it is. But we do see the leapfrog effect all the time, and um, in some respects, you know, when I bought in Newcastle, I kind of did the same thing. There's a lot of downtrodden, busted-ass sud- suburbs where near I where I bought, and um, you know, really, you for for home buyers, they could go two kilometers further and buy just nicer real estate. And um, lo and behold, it's it's performed very very nicely. So it's interesting, right? We often associate uh, those two things, um, and and don't probably give it. Due respect for what it is. Community matters in real estate. And uh, whether it's a thriving new community or an awesome old established community or a character community um, or, a, or, or a walking community close to the city, these things matter. And uh, again, disinvestment is a problem inside of real estate. And I can name a bucket load of suburbs where I would be like, probably wouldn't get involved in that neighborhood because there is a continued level of underperformance. It may look on paper as a high yielding cheap alternative as a property investment, but actually it is a problem. And so today I wanted to share that. I think from an economic point of view, inequality and growth uh, is 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 an issue, a mega trend. Uh, the fact that you know, the economy is fueled by growth and taxes are linked to the economy growing, is a big conversation. If the economy doesn't grow and then all of a sudden taxes need to be created, which is unfolding at the moment, uh, you will get people opt out of being investment investors. And again, if there's a lack of growth overall, then the idea of holding assets which are already diminished in their look and feel and, and ability, if there's no growth for them, you're just speculating that that will improve. And when it doesn't, it's going to come as a bit of a blow to your economic future. I think uh, in some respects, based on the fact that this decade could be f- actually lower growing, finding equity in uh, someone's house is actually uh, almost like a future-proofing, The fact that your neighbor's got equity almost future-proofs your result in real estate. hope that kind of makes sense. All right, folks, that's it from me. I'm going to go abuse robots on the telephone. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for tuning in to the Urban Property Investor. To never miss an episode, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite app or on YouTube. I would love it if you could give the show a rating and share it with your friends and family. In between episodes, you can always keep in touch with me by connecting on social media over Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Until we meet again on the next episode of the Urban Property Investor, take care and bye for now.